Here we are, week five of this 12-part series in the series that we have called Launch. And in this series, we're taking a look at the very earliest part of the church, the beginnings of the early church. And so far, we've take, uh, taken a look at the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Um, we've talked about boldness. We've talked about how God makes all things new and how He was doing that in the early church. Uh, last time, we talked about unity and how the Lord is longing for unity. It was the prayer request of Jesus as he was praying for the church. And uh, today we're going to be taking a look at a very peculiar uh, passage of scripture in Acts chapter 5. It's a story that most of us in ministry kind of want to gloss over, ignore. It's challenging to talk about because this passage of scripture and the story that we find in Acts 5 feels more like something that should be uh, read and recorded in the book of Judges back in the Old Testament. It's harsh. Uh, there appears to be judgment. God strikes somebody dead is the way you read it. And uh, it just doesn't seem like something that should come um, after the cross, after the resurrection, in this era of grace that you and I enjoy living in. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about it. And I've entitled this message, Fear Versus Fear. That'll all make sense as we get toward the end of this message today. But Fear Versus Fear. If you'll recall, last time we talked about what was going on in the church at the end of Acts Acts chapter 4, there is um, a lot of sharing going on. There's a lot of favor between the people. The needs of one another are being met. In fact, I want to reread that in Acts 4, and we're going to read verses 34 through 37. It says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they were distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we are finding this extreme generosity, this community experience that no one had experienced before, and people are voluntarily selling their property, bringing the proceeds, and in some cases, all of the proceeds to the apostles, to the church leaders, so that they could decide how it would best be used. Um, and so I want to now read this shocking story by way of introduction here, and then we're going to tear it apart as we go. But the, the, let's just read it. Um, Acts 5 verses 1 through 11 says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God." Then, then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. 
So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So we have here this very shocking story in this, uh, in this period of time when the church has been growing, enjoying community. People are being added daily to those who are calling themselves Christians and by the name of Christ. And here we find the story of these two people that um, want to uh, seemingly want to participate in this community. They sell some property um, and they bring it under false pretenses that they have brought all the money that they got for the property and are giving all that they got for it. And here we find a few different observations that we're going to make. The first observation is this. There is tension between pride, which means trusting yourself, and generosity, trusting God. There is a tension between pride and generosity that is felt by Ananias and Sapphira. You see, they're seeing all of this stuff going on. They're hearing of people. There's probably people really um, lifted up. They're encouraging people. Um, they hear the story of Barnabas who sold his property and brought all the proceeds. And they wanted a part of that community. They wanted a part of maybe that accolade or whatever it was. And they were feeling this trot, this uh, tension between this pride. Do we trust ourselves? Do we need this money? Do we want to take this vacation? Um, how are we going to pay our bills? Whatever it is that made them decide that they felt they needed to keep part of the money. And yet they brought it looking as though they were giving it in full generosity and giving it um, all that they got in similar fashion to other people. Now, there was a felt pressure to give. I think that that was what was going on. And in fact, you, they even said in those words in Acts chapter 4, it said that everybody was doing this, that everybody who had land was bringing the proceeds of the sale uh, to uh, the apostles. So everyone was doing it. Have you ever been in a scenario when you felt this pressure to be giving, volunteering, serving? Everyone is doing it. And so you, um, you know, you're struggling with your own time restraints or you're struggling with your own budget. You don't really want to be doing it, but you feel the pressure to do it. And so you do, you volunteer. Um, there is a tension there. Um, there may have been a desire to give. We're not, we're not saying that Ananias and Sapphira didn't have a desire to give. Maybe even they desired to give it all. But when it came down to it, they held back a part of it. And they did it together, knowing together that they were holding back a part of the money. But, um, you know, Barnabas and others, they've been seeing them bring it all. Um, 
what they were struggling with is they did not have the faith to fully trust God. And so they had a fear in their giving. They had a fear in their giving. And we're going to be taking a look at this word fear in a more full way, but we find fear present at the thought of giving all of it. Um, You've probably felt that before. Uh, Maybe you felt um, led by God to give, um, maybe give in a, in a generous or an extravagant way, and yet you had that apprehension. You didn't know if you should give all that you felt maybe God was leading you to give, and so you, you held some back. And you might be looking at the story so far and saying, this seems awfully harsh. How in the world is it that these two people would drop dead um, after having given money to the church? How is it that, that there wasn't some measure of grace even if they didn't give everything that they had? In fact, it even seems like uh, Peter was even explaining to him, you didn't have to give it all. Wasn't this money yours? Wasn't this land yours? You could have given it or not given it. And yet here we find this seemingly harsh judgment. Well, here's the deal. The second observation is that sin still kills. Sin still kills. It is um, the, the, uh, the law of life and death um, because of the sinful world we live in. Sin is the killer. Sin kills. Um, it is sin that separates us from God. And whether our sin is atoned for by Jesus or not, um, we are still appointed to die once. In fact, it says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and after this, the judgment. And then he goes on to talk about salvation. But there is still this understanding that you and I need to come to grips with is that sin kills. Sin has put an expiration date on every single one of our lives and every single one of us are guilty of sin. And so I want to reread here in Acts 5, 3 through 5 and 9 through 10, the moments that Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not in your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Verse 9. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. So what's the sin here? Was it not enough obedience? Was that the sin that they didn't have enough obedience? Well, not really. That's not the answer. Is it, is it because they didn't give enough? There wasn't enough giving. No, that's not the problem either. Um, there was no rules upon them as to how much they should be giving or giving at all. It was completely up to them. Their giving is not the problem here. What about lying to look righteous before other men? Is that their sin, that they lied and they, in order to look righteous before other men? Well, we're getting closer, but we still aren't there yet. And probably most of us are guilty of that sin too, having done something or bragged about something we did to look good in front of other people. We're getting close, but there's still something even more targeted toward God, and that is that they attempted to deceive God. 
They attempted and they thought that they could come and they could bring this offering and say it was all the money and yet they were short. And here we find Peter saying, you did not lie to men but you lied to God. And the fact of the matter is, is that you and I, no matter how hard you want to try, no matter how much you want to polish up your life, you cannot lie to God. God knows all of it. He knows every motive of our hearts. He knows everything we're thinking about. He, he knows every little dirty secret. God knows it all. And we are fooling ourselves and we're insulting God, we're insulting the sovereignty of God, the bigness of God, the caring of God, the all-knowing power of God, when we attempt to lie to Him about our sin. God knows every motive. The Bible's very clear that our sin will be exposed for what it is. None of us are going to um, get out of this world without our sin being exposed. It's unclear here whether God should be indicted for killing Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know if, if we can look at this passage and say, God killed them. Um, we can possibly assume that God decided in that moment to stop their heart, but it doesn't say that. But upon them being confronted, upon Peter confronting them for this apparent attempt to deceive God, suddenly they die. Now, I'm going to propose to you, I, I don't know if, if God is to be guilty of killing Ananias and Sapphira here, but one thing I think is possible is that when they were caught in their sin, they were literally scared to death. There was enough respect there for uh, the Apostle Peter and the other apostles. Maybe there was enough respect. After all, they were giving. They were invested. They believed in what was going on enough to where they wanted to bring some money. And it's possible that when their sin was exposed, their guilty conscience was so strong that they died. One thing, though, that we can know for sure is that we can blame their sin for their death not God. God didn't sin. God did not set them up. God did not do anything in this story here that we should say God viciously killed Ananias and Sapphira. It is our sin that kills. In fact, we read in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's very clear in Romans that it is our sin that brings about our death. And that's true for Ananias and Sapphira as well. Galatians 6, 7 and 8 reads this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And in this instance, this consequence for sin is very swift. Um, it wasn't like they had a whole lot of time here to try to figure something out about it. God um, allowed the consequences for sin to be swift in this situation. But you know what? You and I, we are not guaranteed any kind of time. We're not guaranteed that after we sin or when we engage in some sort of deception that we're going to have time to figure it out. We need to understand is that it is our sin that will indeed bring about our death, whether we're talking directly or indirectly. And what we do need to understand is that it is our sin that does it. 
It's not God. It's nobody else. But it's our sin that will indeed bring about our earthly death. But we also look at patterns in Scripture. Patterns in Scripture do show that God did take uh, moments right after an expression of new covenant or an expression of salvation that He led His people in, and that when they violated the new covenant, when they violated the new rules that were set and agreed upon by God and the people, that when someone violated it, there was a swift consequence. That was that was biblically. Um, biblical pattern. We find um, after God brought the people out of the the, um, land of uh, Egypt and he's given them the new laws and Moses goes up on the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments and he comes back down and he finds the people that are worshiping the golden calf and they've already got idol worship going, that there was a plague that came. Instantly God responded in swift fashion to make a point about his new covenant being uh, to be respected. The sons of Korah, very similar. They were, you know, engaging in sinful activity, rising up in rebellion against leadership. There's been this fresh deliverance and boom, the earth swallows up Korah and his sons. We find after they've gone into the promised land, right after Jericho has been defeated, and here they are after 40 years in the desert, now they're in the promised land, and Achan violates God's law by taking some of the loot out of Jericho, and he buries it, and there is plague going on until they can finally figure out what's happening, and God calls the people to stone Achan. It seemed brutal. I mean, God's just now got this new people and they're in the promised land. Things are fresh. And here we find God saying, I'm taking this sin seriously. Is it possible that God allowed the consequences for sin to be swift here so that there could be a bit of an understanding that uh, he is taking his new covenant with his people seriously? But I want to take a look, not just at this instance of Ananias and Sapphira's gift, not turning out as they thought and them dropping dead, but there's some words that are used to describe what people thought after they heard of it happening. I want to take a look at the response to Ananias and Sapphira's um, passing away. In Acts chapter 5, verse 5 and verse 11, after Ananias dies in verse 5, and then also after Sapphira dies in verse 11, the word fear is used in regard to the reaction of those who watched it happen, those who heard about it, those in the church, even those outside of the church. It's talked about great fear gripping everyone who heard the story. Now, the Greek word that's used here and and is used in so many parts of the New Testament, whenever the word fear is used, often is the word phobos. And phobos obviously is a root word that we get that word phobia from. But here's what it means. It means panic, flight, fear, the causing of fear, even the word terror. That's this word phobos. 
And this is an unfortunate outcome of this experience with Ananias and Sapphira. I, maybe God wanted a little bit of this fear to run in, but I don't think he wanted people to stay in this gripping, terrorized fear as described by this word phobos. I want to examine or explain two forms of the word fear that we use. And I would like for us to look at the Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in because we find two distinctions. In the English language, we pretty much have the word fear as it's used, but we find two words that are used and uh, to describe fear. The first one is yare. Um, the English spelling of that is Y-A-R-E, yare, and it means fear or flight, very similar to that word phobos, what that was talking about fear, flight, um, you know, running for your life, terror kind of a fear. And we can find some examples of how that was used. Let's take a look at Genesis 3, 9 and 10. And this is when God was coming across Adam in his sin, and Adam is hiding from God. And it says in verse nine, it says, then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. That word fear, yare, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The natural response when you are experiencing yare is that you would flee, that you would run, you would hide in fear. We also find um, God speaking to Abram in Genesis 15, and he comes, and this holy God is there in his presence, and it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. Do not be yare. Do not run and hide. Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And many times in scripture, we find God saying, do not be yare, do not be afraid and running for your life and hiding. God is calling us out of that kind of fear. But there is another word, because you've probably then heard a verse like this in Psalm 111.10, when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Here we find after we've heard God say, do not fear, do not be afraid. And here we find in Psalm 111, 10, where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, almost like we're called to fear. Well, this is a different um, Hebrew word, yire, Y-I-R-A-H, yire. And yire means awe or reverence. See the difference between running for your life and hiding versus awe and reverence. God calls us to this place of awe and reverence, a place of respect. So my question here for us is, can phobos, this Greek word used in the New Testament describing the church that watches Ananias and Sapphira drop dead, and it says that phobos took hold of the church. Can Phobos, fright and flight kind of fear, give way to this a different kind of fear? Well, indeed, we find that in the Greek language, Phobos also can mean awe 
and reverence? The answer is yes. This, this run and, and terror style fear can give way to awe and respect fear. And in fact, we have an example of that happening. Now, we're not quite to this part in Acts chapter 9. We'll get there in a few weeks. But I want to give us a sneak peek at something that happened in the church in Acts chapter 9. And this is when Saul, who has been a Pharisee, has been leading persecution against the church. And everyone who's a believer is scared of Paul. There's a phobos of Paul. They're afraid of him. And now God um, you know, strikes him with blindness. He's off his donkey. God tells him to go into Damascus, find another guy named Ananias. It's a different guy. And Ananias is supposed to pray for him. But here we find that there is a fear of Saul. The early church is afraid of him. Let's read Acts 9, verse 26, and we're going to read to 31. And it says, When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Phobos, fright and flight. They didn't want anything to do with him because they were afraid. And they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he went with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And verse 31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. This is also Phobos, but it's awe and reverence Phobos. They're walking in the fear, the awe and the reverence of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And they were multiplied. You see here we find in one passage, of scripture, two different fears in operation. In one moment, they're afraid of Saul. And in the next moment, they're walking in awe and reverence for God. This is what we need to see happen in our lives, friends. What we're talking about, like how we're walking in our lives and how we struggle with sin. And boy, am, am what I'm doing good enough? Is my gifts good enough for God? If I bring him only half the proceeds from a sale of my property, am I going to be killed on the spot? And we might find ourselves walking in a phobos or a yare style fear of God. But God would call us to that other kind of fear, the fear of the Lord that's described as awe and reverence. And what we find here in the next verses, after this Ananias and Sapphira moment, and everyone, these two have died, and everybody's um, gripped with fear, verse 12 through 16 paints a picture of them coming out of the fear of that they had. Let's let's read. Verse 12 says, and the and through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord, which is key to an awe and reverence kind of fear. They were with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared to join him, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. They're coming to God, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the 
streets and laid them on the beds and couches and at least the shadow so that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed so what we see happen here is that the fear that they had from hearing of Ananias and Sapphira dying begins to be replaced with an awe and wonder, kind of a feeling towards God and the church, even to the point where people are flocking. They're hearing of the good things. They're bringing sick people out into the streets so that maybe Peter might possibly his shadow might be cast upon them and just that anointing upon him, they might be healed. Who was it that was pronouncing judgment on Ananias and Sapphira? Who was calling him out? It was Peter. Peter was the one who said, How has Satan so filled your heart? How is it that you thought that you could get away with this? You're not lying to men. You're lying to God. Boom, they die. And now we find here this same Peter they're flocking to. You would have thought they would be afraid of Peter as well because Peter was the one that was pronouncing judgment. But they're not because awe and reverence began to replace this fright and flight phobos, this fear. We ought, not, we ought to leave the story of Ananias and Sapphira not with fear, fright and flight and terror, but rather we need to leave the story with an awe and reverence for the things of the Lord. That in our giving, in everything that we own, in all of our possessions, we say, God, it is all yours. We give it to you out of awe and reverence. This is what inspires faith. This is what causes you and I to walk in a confidence because we can trust the Lord. Not in fright and flight, but rather in awe and reverence. Is there something to be learned through this alarming example of God's expectation for honesty, even in our giving? Absolutely. We've got a lot to learn as His church, as His people. And the first is that we can trust Him. And friends, if God calls you out onto some scary callings in life, I mean, it had to have been scary to sell all their property and bring it to the apostles' feet and say, use it. That security blanket, that thing, that nest egg they've been sitting on. And yet God called them at this point in time to give. And friends, if we would have an awe and reverence for God, the Bible said in, in Psalm 111 that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to fill us with a healthy fear of Him so that everything that we have and all that we give, everything that we are is yielded to Him in His purposes. And that is the fear of the Lord. That's what we want. Lord God, I pray that You would take our faith and that You would strengthen it Lord God, that it would move from a fear that says, I'm afraid of you and I'm, I'm responding in terror, God, or I'm, I, I'm just coming to you because I want to escape hell or whatever it might be, God. And it would move to this place of relationship. It would move to this place of awe and reverence and trust. Lord God, that we would not be running in fear, but we would be running towards you in faith. And Lord, any of my friends here today who need to know you was Lord and Savior, who need to trust you and want to have a healthy awe and respect of God and a relationship with Him. May they trust you, Lord, as they say yes to you, as they put their faith in you, and as they begin to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.